0: This interview was recorded on April 20, 2021. Hi, I'm Len Epp from Leanpub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Michael Basker. Based in Oxford, Michael is co-founder of Canelo, an innovative and independent book publishing company launched in 2015. He's also the author of *The Content Machine: Towards a Theory of Publishing from the Printing Press to the Digital Network* and *Curation: The Power of Selection in a World of Excess*, as well as an editor of the Oxford Handbook of Publishing. Michael is also a former writer in residence at DeepMind, and he's working on a new book due out later this year called *Human Frontiers: The Future of Big Ideas in an Age of Small Thinking*. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael Basker and check out his website at michaelbasker.com. In this interview, we're going to talk about Michael's background and career, his books, and technology in the book publishing industry more broadly. So thank you very much, Michael, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the book publishing industry uh, as a career.
1: Um- my origin story uh, i i don't think anyone's ever ever asked me for that and uh i'm sure it's it's in many ways quite boring um i grew up uh just outside a city called norwich here in the uk uh in in the east of the country um you know norwich is an interesting place um i i kind of think that in some ways it's it's maybe a bit of a British text sort of British Austin it's it's weird and it's got some good weird people in it and you know I always think that at the time I hated living there because I think everyone hates where they grow up but actually now I think that that was a really great place uh to be because it just it had a kind of counterculture to it um anyway that that's where I come from um how I ended up uh, in in books and working in the book world, you know, I, I suppose like many people that work in publishing and 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 write, I just always loved reading. And, you know, just well, one of those people who, if you see text on the side of the road, you read it. You're just, your eyes are just scanning for text in a kind of obsessive way. I, I've just been somebody who I think found reading just to be the ultimate escape in life, the ultimate drug. And then also somehow that knowing things, that the ideas that that books convey is also like a bit of a drug. So, you know, I, I was just really, really hooked on that. Um, then went to university, I studied English literature. I did that because um, here in the UK, we, we all do something called A levels. And, you know, you do kind of three of them. It's not like, in a lot of countries where you have a really broad spread actually after 16 and before university you specialize. And I specialized in English history and philosophy. And and I I like those subjects equally. And I just thought, well, if I do English, I can probably crowbar in more history and philosophy than any of the other combinations. And that, that's why I did it. Basically sort of spent years just trying to do literary theory. Um, And my plan was to be an academic, And I thought that that was how life would would go. But then it didn't work out like that. I think I messed up some exams. I blame it, I had these cluster headaches. And so my grades weren't quite as good as they should have been. I mean, I'd always been at the the very top of the year and then it all sort of fell apart. Um, And I'd done uh, a um, a sort of work experience at a literary agency one summer when I was a student. And that kind of opened my eyes to publishing. And I never had this great ambition to be part of that, to be part of the book world. I wanted to be part of the scholarly world. Um, And then just sort of by accident, found myself in that world. And basically at the time I sort of then thought, oh, well maybe I should go into tech and like do some kind of tech entrepreneurship thing. and basically for, I think, probably the past 15 years, I've been trying to square the circle of being an academic, being a publisher, and being a kind of entrepreneur in the tech world. And I, just trying to figure out a way of, of making those three things hang together, um, which I don't think they really do hang together. And I don't think I'm particularly brilliant at any of them, but they're all things that I love. They're all things that I'm passionate about. And so I would say from... sort of slightly strange place have ended up doing bits of all of them.
0: Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing that. I really like that the two instances of taking three things and trying to sort of, you know, connect them and get, get the most out of them. Um, I wanted to actually drill into one, one part of the story there. Um, One thing I like to do when I have people on the podcast who uh, studied undergraduate degrees at Oxford is to ask them a little bit about their story about that, because I I think a lot of, particularly our North American listeners are unfamiliar with the model there, which is that, um, when you, it's three years, not four, like one would typically do in a North American university. And you, when you go in, you choose a, a major and that's all you study typically. Um, you don't get to have electives. So the reason you would say you choose one of them in order to hopefully get the other two in there is that you don't have electives. Um, you know, you can you can attend any lecture you like, which is one of the brilliant things about the university. Um, but you sort of, at, at 18, you have to choose you know, or 17, even you have to choose what you yeah. do. And then, and then, but the, the, the particular part of your story that I wanted to dig, dig into there was um, your grade, your, your final grade comes from a set of examinations that you write at the very end of those three years, typically, or at least at the time. Um, it's for the most part, not determined by anything you do up until then.
1: Yeah. Um, that's, that's correct. Um, it, it is in fact, not at all. Well, there are two essays and, seven three-hour exams um, that you, and you know, basically everything's on those seven three-hour exams and you do them in a big hall. You have to wear a suit, a white bow tie, a big gown and carry a mortarboard. You have to wear sub academic gear. Um, and basically everything, everything's riding on that. And I still have nightmares about it because, you know, it's, you know, even sort of being there is such a kind of big deal in your life at that point that, you know, everything's kind of riding on these exams. Um, it, it's an incredibly backward and stupid way to run things. Like, I would say my my kind of feeling about Oxford is that in, in so many ways, it's such an incredible institution, but it is also a flawed institution, and it, it doesn't... It seems like it's never quite capable of ironing out its flaws. It's never really. It's just too complex and too ingrained to get rid of some of that. So, yeah, you know, you just have this thing where you you have to just prepare for seven three-hour exams. And if you do English, like I did, basically you are expected to just rote memorize a ridiculous number of quotes from works of literature from, you know, old English up to the 20th century. So, you know, I had a a stack of cards, probably about three feet high, each of which was just like a two or three line quote from a novel or a poem or a play. And you just have to jam that into your brain. Um, It's it's to me a sort of slightly silly system, to be honest. Um, But there are a lot of good things about it as well. Um, Like you said that you can go to any lecture you know, actually, in my second year, I didn't go to a single lecture for the whole year um, because, you know, what what you're doing is you're writing essays and then presenting them to an expert. And I just thought these these lectures are irrelevant. I just wanted to go off and read Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida and then sort of maybe kind of discuss Shakespeare a little bit, but then kind of go back to the Foucault. Um, and, you know, if that's what I wanted to do, I could do it and I could just go off. And and actually, that that really worked. Um
0: Yeah, I think what you said, just to drill into this very briefly into this part of the story as well, Um, what you just said there would have shocked a lot of people familiar with the North American university system, um, uh, going a whole year without attending a lecture, basically, you're given a lot of independence as a student there. Um, And this, this has Benefits and it has drawbacks, and I think that if there's any contradictions in the system, you know that that are very difficult to untangle. That's where a lot of that comes from, at least in, in my experience as well. Because, um, you know, and, and you know, the as a student, what you what you what you do is you you know meet with a tutor who's often someone in your college, you know, uh, in your subject, and you present them with a term paper basically, or with a paper every week during the term. And you don't actually have to attend any lectures. You can just go off and do your own reading, and it's very—it can be very intimidating because there you are, like sitting on the other side of a desk from someone who might be like a really famous expert, and you're you're 19 and you're just getting to learn these things. But um, you know, just just very briefly, you know, it's there's the similar my my joke about how the the defil works is that um, they spool you out like a kite at the beginning and come back in four, three or four years and check to see. <laughs> Check to see yeah. how you're doing. So there's a lot of independence there, and some people absolutely thrive being left alone to make their own decisions, and some people completely collapse, and that can be really unfortunate. But um, but in any case, yeah, the 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 idea that you know uh, you know having a period of time when you're having some headaches can disrupt your grades for your whole degree uh, is is just really you know that's a that's a really serious flaw.
1: It, it is a flaw, but actually, um, you know, well, before going back to some of what you said, actually, um, I'm glad that that it happened now. I mean, it, in some ways, I think I would have had um, a really interesting time if I'd just gone down the academic route. But also, I look at so many people who are academics, actually, they're struggling. Um. The sector is screwed. Um, Academia is not a healthy or a happy place right now. Um, I think uh, the incentives are totally warped. The job opportunities are really, really tiny. I mean, publishing is a competitive industry, but academia is just brutal. Um, And above all, I, I just have this feeling that a lot of academics just do push themselves into like narrower and narrower niches. And, And of course they do. That's kind of what, what they're about. And I've realized actually, I just think that would bore me to death. What I like doing is opening things up even wider and then drawing the dots between things. So, you know, I, I think Actually, in some ways, you know, at the time, you wouldn't believe it, but sometimes these things are kind of meant to happen. And and it's funny, you know, so many years later, I can say that and smile. Um, But then on on the point about the the freedom, so, you know, even as as a kind of 18-year-old, i turn up and they just say, they wouldn't set you an essay for the next week. They'd just say, oh, write something on, on this author. And so you have to go and I'd have to do two a week, um, for very short terms, the terms are only eight weeks long, so you have three eight-week-long terms in a year—an awful lot of holiday. Um, but you know, in those eight weeks, I'd write two, three thousand-word essays a week, and there'd be no guidance on it. There'd be no guidance on on. they would just be. They'd just say, "Oh, um, I'd like uh, a, an, an essay on Shakespeare's tragedies next week. So which one you do? What it's about? What your angle is? What your argument is? What the question is? None of that." And to be honest i loved that and and looking back i think there were two there were pretty much two kinds of people people who liked that and people who didn't and actually i i found at the time very strongly the people who'd had better educations you know really posh schools struggled way more at oxford than people like myself who'd just been to a really really bog standard school because we'd spent our life not really having our hand held through every lesson through every project and all those people who'd been to like the really posh schools actually you know they didn't ever really have to think for themselves that much they they were coached their whole life to get into oxford and then when they get there they're like "Oh, go and write an essay on shakespeare's tragedies nothing that prepared them for that kind of level of freedom. Um, and actually I look back and, you know, every job I've ever had, I've never once had a job description. I've never once had a kind of plan. I've never once had clear expectations. And so I've always been making it up, but I loved that at Oxford and I still like that, to be honest.
0: Yeah. I think we could, we could talk about that for a very long time. <laughs> I'm uh, very much, yeah. very much like that myself. Um, and uh it's um, it is something for anyone listening who's still in, in university. Even if you're not at a place where that's sort of like formally the case that you have that freedom, you actually can propose essay questions to your professors. Um, and if you I do think that, I do they'll, they'll, they'll they'll love you. They, i know from my personal experience, they will on both sides. They will they will love you for it. Uh, moving on, so you went from that you went from that crucible, <laughs> and you know you you had a couple of other positions. I'm just looking at your profile on LinkedIn here, but then yeah. you ended up working for uh, a very big name publisher in digital strategy and digitization programs right around the time that the Kindle dropped. Uh, Well, before before
1: that, Len, there there was another really formative experience, because my my first job in publishing, I worked at a literary agency called Rogers, Coleridge and White. Um, And, you know, they were one of the kind of really old um, London literary agencies. They've got an amazing roster of authors, absolutely amazing. (laughs) And that was my introduction to the publishing world, but it was an incredible place to land because they were in this like higgledy-piggledy old muse house in Notting Hill. There were dogs running around the office. One of the founders was, was just this most remarkable lady called Deborah Rogers. Um, and she died a few years ago, and I, I was devastated when she died because she was just the most incredible person. I mean, she was this extraordinary eccentric, just really mad, but just a genius. You know, she discovered Kazuo Shiguru, Ian McEwen, and just this this raft of names that she she represented, like so many Nobel Prize winners. Um, and she was she was just a sort of you could hardly believe that somebody who was sort of so crazy was just such a genius and so successful, but she was. And then there were lots of other brilliant people there who were steeped in the world, old world of publishing, I would say, but who were just really, really interesting. And so, you know, it, it was just an incredible place to learn about some of what what it is to be in publishing and i would say from the really kind of old school traditional perspective but also the perspective you know that'll just go have loads of wine at lunch and all of that and you know what what i think i learned from from that one of the things was that what you know is is really quite irrelevant and it's who you know is important. And th- that was such a shock to me. I just couldn't believe that the world wasn't what you know, that that your network, I thought, God, this is really unfair. This is, it's all about who you know. That It shouldn't be like that. But then, sort of, I, I just thought, well, that's that's kind of how this is. Um, and secondly, I, you just learn. I learned how to to be with people in publishing, like with authors, let's say, or with other publishers. You you learn some of that lovey stuff. And you know, like now, the young people, they're not just going to hear like the old ones on the phone for two hours because no one's working in an office anymore. But, you know, that's all I did at the time was just listen to people on the phone in a difficult negotiation, charming somebody. Um, so you know, in some ways, like all of that old school of publishing, I've never really done it again. But um, it was a brilliant place to be and to 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 see into that world and to have a grounding in that world. Um, and you know, I made
0: made really good friends. Oh, that's really fantastic. Yeah, I'm sorry I skipped over that without uh, I didn't I didn't know that you. No, well, at that it's, period, that's really wonderful.
1: It's it's kind of yeah. You know, I was I was only there for like maybe I, I was actually there in like two bursts of maybe nine months or so um and in the middle i'd I'd gone traveling and so on but it, it did really form me but i think actually my then moving into digital publishing and digital strategy and and so on that was actually a conscious reaction in the sense of you know at the time i was really young and i just thought um oh you know um uh publishing is 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 kind of carrying on. It's just doing what it always did. And I thought, well, you know, it's kind of addicted to newness in that it always likes new books, but it, in its business practices, in its method, it's just staying the same. And I thought, actually, you know, if, if you're going to just do something that stays the same for your whole career, that's not very exciting. Um, and actually, I thought if, if there's going to be a great tidal wave of change, I'd like to be part of that,
0: not just somebody letting it wash over me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that publishing industry has all these um, curious yeah, contradictions in it. Like um, It's all founded on change and technological innovation and uh, aggressive contract negotiation and stuff like that. And yet it often presents itself to the world as, as, as kind of like the, the sort of clubby world of very smart and interesting people drinking wine for lunch <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and giving talks and thinking deep thoughts. Um, and so, uh, and so you, you've made this choice to go into a, you know, a, a very rapidly changing part of the publishing industry, which was digital, digital publication at that time. Um, and this was around the time when you, uh, I believe, started thinking about the concept of curation. Um, I'm probably skipping some things over.
1: I, yeah, That's I mean, fair. well, I mean, we've got to skip. I mean, and, yeah. you know, I, I, I fear for the person who who relives my life in too much granular detail. <laughs> um, I guess that the thinking about curation came a bit a bit later and many, many, conferences later and you know I think there was a a sort of golden age from 2007 to 2013 when the whole space of digital and books was being created and being invented and it felt like anything might be possible that the grand millennia old history of the codex might be in for its most defining moment that that you know this this was the the most interesting time since gutenberg that the entire ecosystem of books could be reinvented and could be done so in a way that was creatively extraordinary commercially exciting and and so on um so i found that a really exhilarating time and to some extent, you know, really believed that or wanted to believe a lot of that. Um, it was also a brilliant time to be working in in this because you could go to a lot of conferences and, you know, it, it really has been something that's helped me travel all around the world and meet An unbelievable range of fascinating people and you know sitting here in 2021 it's it's kind of almost hard to believe how much of all that we used to do and it's 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 difficult to remember but you know digital publishing really was this this great space of of people just meeting traveling talking and imagining the future in a very open way um you know i think i think how it ended up is that that we have a slightly more boring and stable and unchanged future than people had imagined at the time, but that, you know, many of the predictions did come to pass. You know, a lot of people read books digitally. When I first started working in digital publishing, the question was, would anyone ever, ever read an ebook, and i would have said 80 80 85 percent of people in in publishing would have said no nobody will ever read a digital book well you know you're definitely wrong but did we create all of these incredible new flourishing startups reinventing the book um not nearly as many as i would have thought you know lean pub is is a good example of i think a really new kind of company but the numbers that are sustainable has proved to be a lot lower than anyone thought. Um, actually, for for a long time, I kept this um, just public Google document that was a list of digital publishing startups,
0: and you know had hundreds of names on it. Um, the failure rate was shockingly high. Um, I found that list when I was doing research for this interview, and it was it was interesting to scroll through it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that, that list, it used to be the top thing that came up on Google if you Google digital publishing startups. So the amount of traffic it had was huge. I never knew how much because you couldn't get Google analytics on Google docs at the time, but whenever I opened it, I could see it was absolutely chock full of people at any time. It was always being viewed by a lot of people. Um, But anyway, to to go back to thinking about curation, you know, I I started to think about that because I would go to all of these conferences and people would bang on about curation. And it annoyed me at first because I thought, you're just talking crap. Um, You're trying to borrow stuff from the art world. Um, You're trying to look cool. And then the more I I thought, the more I I actually began to realize that, you know, in in the infinite catalogs of the digital era, curation was the single most important piece of value add that, that you
0: could do. So, you know, and then ended up writing a book about it. Yeah. Uh, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll point people in in the transcription of this uh, interview to various talks that you've given and things like that. Because there's, there's, I mean, there's one you gave at like, Google. Uh, there was a TEDx talk as well. Uh, very interesting yeah. stuff where you can... You in, fact, can in fact, the, 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 the TEDx talk,
1: that, that was sort of predated the book. And it's almost, I, I kind of, that... <laughs> got asked to do a TEDx talk and had been thinking about curation. So I had to write this talk about curation. And then, then that kind of eventually became a book or at least it it was very much connected
0: to that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're really fascinating to listen to. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, You know, discoverability is, is is one of the more recent terms that are sort of things where people say that that's the most important thing when it comes to selling books and, and, the way discoverability often works is through these curation mechanisms like, you know, algorithms in, in, um, in, well, in Google, uh, in, in Amazon and things like that. And it's become this really um, interesting struggle from the perspective, partic- I believe, of, of, of sort of publishers, which we could talk about a little bit, but also, uh, you know, in the self-publishing world as well, where you're always, you know, there are these selection machines out there. Uh, and you've got to try to, but they're they're not transparent. You you don't know how they work, and so you've always got to try experiments, or or you know try to learn from people who've succeeded at them to try and get your thing put in front of the right people.
1: Yeah, and and well, I I actually wish that I I could just go back and rewrite all of curation because you know what I think you've you've essentially described is is the huge asymmetry of power between the great tech platforms and everyone else. And, you know, that's only become so much more apparent since I wrote that book. You know, it was already clear then. Now I think everyone can see that, Um, that, that, you know, and and I I think it kind of validates the thesis that um, curation is really important because the power of the people, you know, the powers of the people who who are curating, you know, Amazon doesn't really own content other than TV, Um, nor does Google, nor does Facebook. It's their ability to... Curate a mass that is the core of their value proposition, um, and I would talk so much more about that as as a sort of a a power, um, and and equally I would would want to talk more about how that power influences power elsewhere. You know, like actually the thing that I I think I missed to to a massive degree when I wrote the book and and managed to get it in at the end uh, on the paperback was just how much it was like the curation of, of kind of the political realm and information had become the arbiter al- almost of geopolitics, you know, and we saw that with Brexit, we saw that with Trump. Who sees what information, why, how, and when... Is now a kind of a question of of absolutely central importance to the future of society. You know, this isn't like curation as a nice thing for managing the fact that we've got 40 million songs. It's not curation as helping self-published authors on Amazon. It's curation as directing the direction of our democracies, you know? And that's kind of crazy. And I, I I wish I could address that a lot more and see how the pattern of all of those things holds together.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, we could talk about that forever. I mean, one, it just reminds me of one um really fascinating kind of incarnation of curation is the idea that a lot of people seem to have that if something comes into their world, it's come through some kind of gate with a keeper. And I remember, um, you know, at an interview with someone who had been sort of influenced into believing in some kind of conspiracy theory had said, well, but it kept coming up in my Facebook feed. It came up so many times. There's no way it can't be true. Yeah. And and Um, there's a weird way in which, you know, yeah, again, that, 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 that people actually do feel that their, their world is somehow curated one way or another, which it is. It's in a lot of ways, but that there's some kind of, a lot of people don't find it disturbing to think that there's an authority in control of, of what they see and what happens. They, in fact, sort of very much believe that's just how the world works.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think, um, well, that, it, it's almost the question, you know, and this is something that I've often been asked about curation, you know, When you say that there is an authority in that it's, let's say it's Facebook. But Facebook isn't even a person, and and an algorithm isn't even a person. An algorithm doesn't have um, agency in the way that a human does, despite the fact that, you know, machine learning scientists call them agents. They're not not really actually agents because they don't have any responsibility. Um, So, you know, it's kind of the crazy thing is, is that actually nobody is in control And perhaps that's the problem, you know, is that, um, you you know, we need more humans in the loop, not out of the loop. And, And to me, curation is, it's not just about humans, it's about machines and it's definitely about algorithms, but responsibility, expertise, judgment,
0: they're kind of human traits and curation is much better when it's enriched by them. I I mean, I I completely agree with that. It's it's really interesting how complicated it can become, though. Um, One example that's come up on this podcast before uh, is um, I was interviewing a woman who who, um, had grown up in Eastern Europe in a very Catholic community. And I'm not picking on Catholics here. This was just the nature of the, the story. And she said, look, if you went to a local bookstore and tried to order a book on how to get a divorce, you would get a visit from the priest later that week um right yeah. and you know i yeah. always think about that when i hear when i hear people complain say like why do you want an algorithm picking your books for you when like i'm i'm here at the local bookstore and i could get to know everything about you myself yeah <laughs> and it's like well actually that's not that's 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 an easy choice for me i'll go with the algorithm yeah yeah and i, I mean actually you know <laughs>
1: it does show the flip side you yeah i mean I mean that that is a really interesting story, um, and you know, yeah, it's people are ultimately the creators of these things, and so you know, it, it's it's like when you know pe- people in technology will occasionally try and say, you know, technology is somehow divorced of you know moral norms, biases, etc. Of course, it's not. Of course, it's totally um, uh, implicated in all of those things because everything we do is wrapped up in our our own humanity um so no of course you know anyway i think there's so many interesting things about that story but i'm not actually bothered that much by um the whole sort of privacy thing um it it doesn't worry me on on a personal level too much um you know I, i almost think I I follow the debates around privacy probably a bit too closely. And I I think the pendulum has now swung amongst that kind of circle where people think that any kind of data collection by uh, a company is evil surveillance capitalism. I don't buy that at all. Um, Actually, I'm quite happy to give bits of data. I don't feel that protective over it. Um, I think my life probably is
0: made better and easier in many ways because of it. Um, Yeah, I could talk about that forever. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting. There are services out there that set themselves up to protect your privacy that demand more information from you than any of the services. In order to protect you, they have to know what they have to know your information. And so yeah. people, will, people will sign up for these things under the idea that they're protecting themselves when actually what they're doing is they're exposing themselves. Uh, and there's been a lot of very i believe like misleading messaging around this kind of thing it comes from a good place it comes from a from a from a proper concern uh, particularly with the idea that like you know basically virtual models of you are being built and sold you know that's that's something to there's definitely something to think about there but specifically with respect to ethics though um in the interest of time as i'm going to say yeah a couple more times um so you were writer in residence at DeepMind, and i see here from your profile that you were um consulting with their ethics and society team and i was wondering if you could just take a couple of minutes to talk about what your work was with with this company
1: well i mean i i was there um Really, we were going to explore sort of long form writing projects. I mean, to be honest, nothing in the end really came of it. And, you know, the, the, for me, the most important thing was I just had an incredible kind of insight and, and experience. You know, we, we wanted to I- explore ideas around, you know, those topics, ethics, ethics of ai the impact on society of ai you know i think in in the end it didn't really come to anything so you know the work itself never really went anywhere i think i did a lot of kind of internal writing and stuff like that um so you know in in some ways i think you know the, the kind of output certainly publicly aren't really there um what it gave me was an incredible insight into what it's like at the very technological frontier, how people think, what it's like to be at a tech company, um, to be exposed to the kind of very highest level of debates around AI, around the sort of ethical, safety, social implications of AI, and to be immersed in that, um, just to talk to to really clever people about a lot of these things. And, you know, it it was an incredible experience to have and a great confidence booster that actually you know you you can go in and and have these kinds of discussions and not be totally at
0: sea um yeah it sounds like it's so, a really really great experience to get to see you know things happening at the cutting edge like that it,
1: it it's re- it was really brilliant you know and um i i really enjoyed it i love you know i do two days a week um in in the offices at google and deep mind and you know it, it was just fantastic and i mean just just an amazing place, really, um, that is is doing extraordinary work. Um, you know, and I think it's, you know, it, it's, you know, the level there speaks for itself. You know, they've done so many amazing things.
0: <laughs> Uh, Well, speaking of doing amazing things, um, it was really interesting when I was uh, preparing for this interview, I I watched a talk that you gave, I believe back in 2015, it may have been in Argentina. uh, And this was right around the time when you'd launched, I just bring it up, I'm not going to ask you about what you talked about five years ago, but you you, you talk about how you just left a really great job in publishing to start your own company. And you said, uh, who knows, it might turn out to be totally crazy. Uh, And I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, your, your publishing company and how things have turned out. Um well things have turned out pretty well. And, you
1: know, uh sort of five, six years on, you know, we're we're shortlisted for independent publisher of the year in here at the UK in the big publishing awards. Um, you know, we're now a multi-million pound business. Um, we've got 18 employees, um, a lot of authors. We are selling millions of ebooks, millions of print books. So, you know, I would say it's worked out very well. Um, The amount of blood, sweat and tears it's taken to get to this point is unreal. You know, it's I think it's in many ways it's the thing that I'm most proud of because, you know, it's it's just brutally hard to build a publishing company and make it successful and to scale it to a level, you know, where you are really sustainable and you're secure. And, you know, we built Canelo with until last year, um, pretty much no outside investments. So, you know, every penny we've had has has been from generating sales. <laughs> so you know, we've done it the hard way. Um, so I, I would say it's def it, it is still. I would say to I, I, in many ways, I would say now to people, if you're going to quit your job and start a publishing company, I think you're probably more crazy now than I did at the beginning of the journey. But equally, I'm more certain that it can be done. Um, it's just going to be tough. And if you're ready for that,
0: great. Um, but if you're not, you're in big trouble. And what do you think are going to be some of the sort of new challenges that, that people running publishing, book let's take specifically to book publishing uh, companies, are going to be facing in, say, the next five years? Do you know, so... From, from my
1: experience at Canelo, I thought the biggest problem we would face would be um, finding the books. And I thought that would be really tough, that, that no agents, no authors would want to speak to us. Um, and and that, that whole aspect would be a nightmare that, you know, we just were unproven. And I thought most of the other aspects would be OK. Actually, it's never been difficult to get books at all. Even really, really good books. You know, I think agents were right from the start—way more open-minded than I thought they would be—and and I think that was partly because we were always very careful not to pitch ourselves as a digital or tech startup. Even though at the beginning, especially, we were just pure ebook, pure digital. We were very about um, deploying new technologies, um, but we just knew that everyone in publishing hated that. And the more you tried to spin yourself with kind of Silicon Valley crap, for want of a better word, actually, the more you just rub people's noses up the wrong way and it it backfired and it was really counterproductive. So we were really careful to, right from the beginning, sort of play up to our publishing heritage if you will or background in publishing the values of publishing and and to to make sure that was front and center so actually the whole thing of getting authors getting books that's been fine i think much more the difficult thing is one how do you then sell those books in sufficient quantity to make it work and then two it's just all of the operational complexity of running a company, from building a team, keeping a team happy, um, making sure that all of the finances are working, making sure your systems are working. The operational side of publishing is so complex. You've got so many products, and each one is really complex that that that's really hard. Um, and then I actually just think, you know, being honest, I think just just the people side of running a business is really tough as well. And I think I'd probably underestimated that. I'd never given what it is to be a manager of a team enough thought. And actually, if you are trying to scale a company, that, that's so critical and probably
0: needed a lot more thought than, than certainly I'd given it. And um, one thing I wanted to ask you about too was uh, one thing that to some extent surprised me about being in the sort of book publishing world is uh, having to deal with regulations uh, and changing regulations. Uh, I mean, we've been affected by Brexit. Right.
1: But do you know, we, we haven't been affected by Brexit at all. Um, I, I, well, I would say I've personally been affected by Brexit on an emotional level, having lived through the whole drama for the God knows how many years and watching this whole, Whole craziness unfold, but um, as a business, we we haven't uh, been impacted by Brexit at all. Um, you know, we we sell most of our books in the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, um, and everything's just carried on. Um, I think the only way it has impacted us is that a lot of our paper for our print books comes from Sweden, and the printers have been finding that a lot more difficult. But they deal with that, so. It's fine. So the regulation side, huh, I haven't found it too
0: problematic, to be honest. Oh, well, that would be low down on my list of of
1: of, of problems. Um, the the
0: very very long list of problems. Um, that yeah, wouldn't be too hard. Yeah, I guess I guess um, uh, what I'm trying to get at is that it, it, yeah, it's not it's not it's not the biggest worry, but it was it was one of the ones that surprised me, right? That I'd be reading like I'd, I'd right. Bob uh, would be reading lengthy EU legislation um, uh, <laughs> about very, right, yeah. you know, like that's, that's just, but that's just a part, part of, you know, doing, doing business all around the world. You know. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the different things you
1: have to think about. Like, I would say in many ways, the hardest thing about founding a company um, Is that every problem is basically your problem at the end of the day? So, every single problem in the entire business, if there is a problem, it is is ultimately your problem as well. And because you're a startup, you don't just have a team of problem solvers in any given area to just go and sort it. You know, if you're the CEO of um, a sort of, you know, Forbes 500 company or whatever, you've just got your teams that you can just go and sort out every problem. But actually, if you're just a small scrappy startup, no, the founders have to sort out every problem ultimately. And so that's quite stressful because just every day you get a barrage of different problems that might be legal issues, that might be author issues, that might be issues with cash flow, that might be issues with HR, that might be issues with uh, an unhappy author, that might be about customers kicking off, you know, but there's always something, or, you know, as, as happened to us, our whole office got completely flooded by a random leak in the flat above. Well, you oh, know, right. that's really, you know, your problem. So I think I think that is the hardest thing, is that all the problems are yours and you never quite know where the next one's coming from. And whenever anything's kind of plain sailing, I always just think, you know, something's something's lurking and it's gonna come up.
0: Um, and of course, I just think, to just to end on a positive note though, um there's often always something uh something positive around the corner too, which is part of the excitement. No,
1: well that that's totally it as well. So well, I was just gonna say the positive thing about all of that story is that actually you do become just way more resilient over time. And it's amazing that um, you know, like now, just you know, every month we're we're dealing with you know, kind of sums that we would have been dealing with in maybe a year in, like, the first couple of years. So, you know, suddenly, like, you, you just realise that you've kind of overcome your problems and stuff that would have really stressed you out, let's say, about, an, you know, problem with an author that would have almost given you a sleepless light in the first year. Now you just think, right, we, we can deal with this. We'll manage it. It's fine. You just grow you know, you just grow better at knowing the problems that you can overcome. And so many of the problems of yesterday are just swamped because you've just got bigger, you've got better, they're gone. And actually, when you look at some of the new problems you have, you think, well, those are the kind of problems that we literally signed up for. Those are the kind of problems we would have given our left arm to have um, three years, three years ago, even, you know, because that that shows, you know, when we're worrying, you know, oh, how are we going to get, hundreds of thousands of books to this retailer sort of thing so yeah Yeah, and and there's that point about good things happening i i just love it when sometimes there's complete and i think this is publishing is is good for this you just get completely surprised by something going even better than you could have ever imagined and yeah you know sometimes it is the exact opposite but sometimes things that you you never thought would work what really bail you out and that, that has happened to us at Canelo many many times. we've been surprised
0: in a good way pardon pardon my kind of cute segue to ending the uh ending the interview because we do have a, a deadline uh, but um, we didn't actually talk about your book the content machine um, uh, but it sounds like you've gone and, and uh, built your own uh very successful one uh after having thought through the theory uh you know years ago and so that's just so wonderful wonderful to hear you know um
1: I, I do sometimes think about that, and I used to think about publishing in a very abstract kind of way. And I was—I've been so interested in in you know developing a kind of theory of publishing. And actually, at, at Canelo, where I think I think you're right, it does put into practice everything that I'd said. But you're so engaged every second with just kind of the practicality of running the business and making things happen and keeping the show on the road and growing and doing good work and, and making the authors and the readers happy that I almost never get to step back and think about it in the kind of somewhat grandiose <laughs> uh, terms that I, I used to think about these things, you know, cause it's just in the trenches doing it, making it happen. Um, and I think, you know, at some stage I'd I'd like to be just less fully, fully on it all the time and actually to be able to reflect a bit more and, and to go back to to thinking about the world of books in a slightly more relaxed and open way.
0: Well uh Thanks very much uh, for taking time out of your very busy schedule and adding the challenge of doing a random podcast interview <laughs> onto, your, onto your daily. No, it's things. a real
1: pleasure, Len. It's a real
0: pleasure. Um, no, it's really, really great to, to come on. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks very much. And I'll, I'll make sure to – I mean, I'm sure everyone who's, who's listened to the this uh, – interview has got a sense that there are a lot of different avenues we could have gone down and I can I can point you there with various links and things like that to various things that Michael has written uh, and various talks that he's given. Uh, Well anyway in any case thank you very much for taking time out of a beautiful Oxford evening and uh, yeah we really appreciate it. Thank you very much Len and thank you for having me. Thanks.